0: This morning we heard briefly from Srimad Bhagavatam about the festival celebrating the birth of Krishna. And this evening I want to speak from the Bhagavad Gita with regard to the idea of the Abhutar, Abhutar Tatva. So as we heard this morning, he has two places of birth. While he's appearing in Mathura, that's true, he's also appearing in Vrindavan. So he appears in more places than one. He's at all places, at all times, and appearing in different places at different times, as he sees fit in different forms, for that matter. And so this subject matter, the descent of Abhutar Abhutartattva, is described, explained in the fourth chapter of Bhagavad Gita. The fourth chapter of Bhagavad Gita is about knowledge, yoga of knowledge, but in the beginning of the chapter, in order to collect Arjuna's faith further in what he's speaking about, he gives a little history as to that which he is explaining and further that which he's about to explain, in particular, yoga of knowledge. It says it goes back a long, long time. And... He says that, even though it goes back a long time, I'm the one that initially spoke it. I spoke it to the sun god, he said, who then handed it down to the father of mankind, Manu, and Ikfaku, Manu, in his way it was passed on. And here I am again, speaking it to you today. So that was a pretty interesting statement Arjuna is sitting with his friend on the chariot and he just found out, just kind of off the cuff, a little history, that Krishna spoke this ancient science of yoga billions of years ago. And he did to the sun god, not an ordinary person like Arjuna sees himself to be. So while Krishna's trying to instill faith in him about what he's about to speak about by giving some reference to its history. It's been around a long time and it's been in the hands of very extraordinary people, sun gods and fathers of mankind and so forth, rajas and rishis, big uh, saintly persons and kings and so forth. It's uh, It's been handed down through them. And while that may certainly potentially and still some faith in Arjuna about what he's about to hear. It also creates a bit of a doubt. The doubt is that you're my friend sitting here on the chariot and you're telling me that you spoke this billions of years ago to the sun god? How's it possible that you could be here and you could be there? And could you explain that to me? And so Arjuna gives an opening then really for Krishna to begin to speak a little bit about himself The gentleman is not going to toot his own horn without being invited to do so or asked to say something about himself. So Krishna is a refined gentleman, especially here, statesman that he is on the battlefield of Kurukshetra, trying to be impartial and give uh, Upanishadic wisdom and so forth. So Arjuna gives him an opening to speak about himself. And indeed he does. And he clears Arjuna's doubts, and the, the theory, the truth, the Tatva about the Avatar is uh, brought to light. This is, of course, a cornerstone to the theology of the Gita, which is yet to come. Theology of the Gita is really contained, for the most part, and concentrated in the middle six chapters. Here we're only in the fourth chapter. So from 7 to 12, we find Krishna explaining the theology of the Gita. But here, early in the fourth chapter, given the opportunity by Arjuna, he speaks on this doctrine of the avatar, the truth about the avatar. means, tara means to come from up, cross down, so to descend. And of course it's um, readily used. In reference to the descent of God within the world. And so, as I say, this is uh, an important part of the theology, and it's just kind of in- inserted here. This is the first we hear any of the theology of the Gita. He puts this in place. And what he explains is, of course, relevant to the topic today because we're talking about Krishna's birth, God's birth very difficult topic to get, get your head around. And um, he speaks about it over a few verses. I'll go over them briefly. First of all, of course, he he tells Arjuna in reference to your question, how could I have spoken this to the sun god? He says, I've been around a long time and you have too. Many, many births we've had. And... course this idea of many births has already been brought up earlier on when he said sober people are not bewildered by change of bodies from one body to the next any more than a person is bewildered by the change of body from childhood to youth and from youth to old age changing bodies and as we change from childhood to youth and from youth to old age, so similarly at the time of the death of old age, we get a childhood body again and start over again. And so this this doctrine has already been explained. He refers back to it in a sense, and he says, I remind you now, this is not your first birth. You've had many births, and at the same time there's a difference between you and me. And the difference is that you forgot them And the difference with me is that I don't forget them. I remember all my births, all my many, many appearances in the world. So, could be a special person that uh, remembers their previous birth and maybe the one before. These days they say they have people who can hypnotize you and take you back and reveal to you what your last life was or the one before that. Usually, you were a king or a pharaoh in Egypt, or some fantastic thing that uh, sounds really great. What doesn 't kind of match up is how you got this particular birth, which is just not so prestigious and glorious, so but dubious of such practices and um, for that matter, what is the need for knowing all the past births if we understand that we 've been taking birth many, many times, and but we should concentrate on is stopping from taking birth and learn that lesson in this life. So anyway, it could be an extraordinary person who can remember their previous lives. Krishna says he can remember all of them. So that's quite curious, but he wants to go on from there. He's not just some kind of hypnotist or something that can fake it or a person, for that matter, who can actually remember his previous lives. There's, there's more to him than that, more to him than a good good memory so here's the beginning then the doctrine of the avatar the truth of the avatar, the descent of Bhagavan, of God within this world, it's very uh, extraordinary he says ajopisan avayatnam. He says, although I am Ajo, birthless. Now, that's not so hard to understand. We are, we learn from the Gita that we are also birthless. We are birthless, Krishna is birthless. We are born, and apparently Krishna is born also. We are birthless, but we take birth. So Krishna is saying he's birthless. And yet he takes birth, nonetheless. Ajopisan avyatman. So although I am birthless and I am imperishable, the jiva is also imperishable. Ajopisan avyatman putanam ishvaro. Now here's something different. He's distinguishing himself from others who are also birthless in the sense that they have no beginning, yet take birth. He is also birthless. And he takes birth. He's imperishable. The soul is imperishable. But Isparo Mutanam Isparo Pisan. Of all living entities, I'm the Ishwar. So I'm in control of everyone, he says. He's coming right out. So you're giving the theology, speaking about himself. This would be a little embarrassing, as I say, if he hadn't been given, invited to explain himself. Please explain yourself. He has to say who he is. I'm the controller of all beings. I'm imperishable and birthless and the controller of all beings. So we may be birthless and we may be imperishable, but we're not the controller of anybody or anything, practically. He's the controller of all living beings. Nevertheless, he says, prakutin samadhishtaya, remaining in control of my material nature, sambhavami atmamayaya, Two things are mentioned here material nature, prakriti, and atma maya. He says, nonetheless, remaining in control of my material energy rather than coming under the control influence of material nature, which is what happens to us when we take birth. We lose it and forget ourselves. He doesn't forget. He remains in control of material nature while taking birth within it and how by another force, by another influence, atma-mayaya. So he introduces here his swarup-shakti. You know, so so many interesting features here now, aspects of the theology, the doctrine of shakti and internal shakti. He mentions his external shakti, material nature, and his internal shakti. And in mentioning it, he's distinguishing himself from what? From Jeev shakti Jiva Shakti is not Bhutanam Ishparopi. He's not uh, also in control of all living beings, although he may be imperishable and birthless in one sense. He takes birth, the Lord takes birth nonetheless, but he remains in control of material nature and we come under the control of material nature. And what is it that's lacking in us that causes us to come under the influence of material nature? What's lacking in us is the influence of Atma Maya of the Svarupa Shakti. Krishna is moving under this influence, his own internal energy. So he can be in the world, but not of it. He's moving under the influence of a Shakti, but it's his Swarup Shakti, his Atma Maya, his own internal energy. The influence of this energy, we can deduce from this, is what? That is enlightening, illuminating. And the influence of the material energy is that it is diluting, covering. So, being without that influence, jeev shakti although it is superior to matter, being conscious, but nonetheless, being small in size, or being only a partial manifestation of the Surup shakti it has the potential to come under the deluding influence of the distorted manifestation of the sarup Shakti, known as material nature. Shakti of the Lord in one sense is one. Prabhupada used to give the example of electrical energy. With electrical energy, you can heat and you can cool at the same time. You can have different effects. So the Lord Shakti can illuminate or it can delude in terms of its manifesting. Uh, differently, one shakti, but partially manifested in a distorted way, in the maya shakti. What is the constitution of the surup shakti? It has three elemental constituents: sandini, samvit, ladini. Existence, cognizance, and adanda joy. What do we find in the jeev? In the jiva we find existence, right? It's imperishable, as we've already said. It exists. It will always exist. Never was a time when it didn't exist. Never will be a time when it doesn't exist. So, sat. And it has the power to be aware of itself. We find that starts to manifest in human life. What happens in human life is that the influence of maya shakti on the jiva is slackened. Human life is like getting out of jail on probation. Mm-hmm. Therefore, if you violate the probation, you could go back to jail. There's some freedom. And with freedom, there's enough freedom to hang yourself also. Or, if we use the freedom appropriately, then we can get off probation altogether and be a free, free man in the free world, a free soul. So in human life, the... Material nature's grip is slackened to the extent that we can know our cognitive aspect, the cognitive aspect of our being, becomes more manifest. We know that we exist, and therefore we philosophize and ask questions why and and so forth. Little knowledge, though, can be a big problem. Half-truth is worth no truth at all, sometimes they say so. We have to be careful with a little bit of knowledge. We have to, in other words, conduct ourselves in such a way that we get more knowledge, that our capital increases. But we exist, we can be cognizant of ourselves. The problem, of course, in material life is that we don't know the extent to which we exist. We are not cognizant of the extent to which we exist. Therefore, fear. Therefore, anxiety. Therefore, the sense that our existence is threatened, and so we struggle. Struggle for existence. If we knew, the extent to which we be, then we we'll just be <laughs> and be happy, kind of happy. Happy in the sense that we would not be unhappy in the way others are who aren't aware of the extent to which they exist and are struggling in, 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 in an attempt to overcome the threat of non-existence, as it appears. Material nature poses this threat to us. So we exist and we have knowledge, we are a unit of existence, knowledge and joy. We are certainly in pursuit of joy. We exist, we have knowledge and we use that knowledge to try to realize happiness. And we do to some extent. We are an enduring unit of knowledge and happiness, but we look, unfortunately, without being aware... To the extent to which we exist, or further for the purpose for which we exist, we nonetheless pursue the purpose, which is to be happy, and we pursue it in relation to things that don't endure, so we don't get enduring happiness. We get some happiness. But if we were to become free from that false pursuit of enduring happiness in relation to things that don't endure, and we were uncovered from the influence of the Maya Shakti, what would we find? we find we are a unit of existence, a unit of knowledge, and a unit of bliss, joy. What kind of existence, what extent of knowledge, and what extent of ananda? It is basically the ananda, the joy, the bliss, that is uh, a result of overcoming the threat of non-existence, the kind of relief if you will, that someone would get from finding out that they were misdiagnosed with cancer or something like that, or that the cancer had receded. Great kind of relief lying on the bed in the hospital. They still have to get out of the hospital and go out and have a party and express yourself in relation to that relief. So relief we we can taste, and it's a huge relief relief that comes from knowing the extent to which we exist, and forever being free from the pursuit of happiness in relation to things that don't endure, that only makes you unhappy. Because the more you like them, the more problem you create for yourself, the more suffering you create for yourself. Why? Because you can't keep them. So the more we are attached to things that don't endure in the pursuit of enduring happiness, the more we've set ourselves up for frustration and unhappiness. If you like it, the problem is bigger because you can't keep it. This is material existence. So to overcome that, such attachment, we call it mukti. How to arrive at that, that's another thing, but you can arrive at that. You can arrive at a state free from the influence of maya, of material nature. And what do you find? You find that you exist in you, in the jiv tattva the jeev shakti You find existence, you find knowledge, and you find happiness, but you find it in minute quantities. In uh, perhaps the bhagavad Sandarva, Jiva Goswami says, there is a particle, minute particle of bliss in the Jiva. Bhaktivinoda Thakur says, anandakan, particle of bliss. So some bliss, some existence, that is a restful, if you will, existence, restful in terms of the relief, the deep breath, the sigh of relief that comes from running around in relation to things that don't endure. You grab it and it changes form and disappears. And that can never get your feet on the ground, so to speak. This is material existence. We're looking for some firm ground to stand on, to build our home, our happy home. But the real estate prices drop (laughs) and... And uh, your dream home is now your nightmare. Your nest egg has now become your biggest debt. You owe more than the house is worth. So your dream house that you want to buy is something somebody else is, who wants to get rid of, right? He wants to sell it like anything and you want to buy it like anything. So we're just picking up rejected refuse, refuse of others. So to overcome this, this is a big thing. But it's a small thing in relation to a life of love in connection with Bhagavan that's conducted under the influence of the Saurabh Shakti. There we have existence, it's called Sandini. There we have knowledge, it's called Sambit. There we have joy, it's called Bhadini. And it takes this sat, chit, and ananda and extends it. Rupa Goswami has said in Bhakti Rasa Sindhu that the joy, the happiness of Brahman he means kind of the, also the happiness of the Jeev, independent of a relationship with Bhagawan, much as it could be, free, that is, from the influence of material nature. If it could be multiplied a trillion fold, it would not compare to a tiny atomic particle of the happiness of Prem. Prem, love, this is under the influence of Saroop Shakti. This is a kind of affair a union, dynamic union in relation with Bhagavan. So this is conducted under the influence of the this Atma Maya, the Swarup Shakti, Sandini, Ladini, Sambit. That's the primal Shakti. He says, Atma Maya. it's my Shakti. He's Swayam Bhagavan, he has Swayam Shakti. Who is a Swayam Shakti? That is Radha. In the overall sense, as Swayam Shakti, She's the personification of this Ladini. Then within the context of the three elemental constituents, she presides over Ananda, joy. Vasudeva, Yogamai also, presiding over Sambhit And Valdeva over existence, Sandini. What kind of existence then? Is that the abode of the Lord, Chintamanitam? That's described as all possibilities there. And the knowledge, the chit, reaches such a pitch there that it looks like ignorance, even, so that it can afford the bliss of intimacy with Bhagawan. So, that our potential to experience, to exist, to know, to experience, and to be blissful is insignificant in significant comparison to the kind of existence, the extent of knowing, and the measure of bliss that we can have in relation, in a relationship with Bhagawan. That is conducted under the influence of the Shakti. That Srupa Shakti then is the primal Shakti, and then it manifests partially as the Jeev Shakti. So the Jeev Shakti is distinct, but at the same time, it has its origin. Because it has its origin in the Srupa Shakti, some trace element is there. And then we come to the Maya Shakti. What do we find in the Maya Shakti? We find a kind of existence within the Maya Shakti. One that's here today and gone tomorrow. Things come into being, but they don't endure under the influence of Maya Shakti. So there's a non-enduring kind of existence under the influence of that Shakti. And then there's a kind of knowledge under the influence of that Shakti also. And that knowledge is the knowledge of material things, which is kind of an ignorance in a broader sense. It's a relative knowledge. It all changes. Look, for example, at uh, scientific uh, progress, as it may be called. Years ago, people thought that the world, the Earth, everything moved around the Earth. The planets moved around the Earth. Right? And they had figured it all out. They had laws, some kind of physics, I suppose, at that time. And they were running their lives based on those laws of nature as they understood them only to find out that they were wrong <laughs> and actually the earth is moving around the sun what a change dramatic hmm? so not only does our understanding of what's taking place change so it's relative knowledge it might be knowledge at one point appear to be but ignorance at another point not only does our knowledge of what's actually taking place change, what actually takes place changes, that's another thing Material nature is not really as static, it's static in relation to the jiva, like ice is static in relation to water. What can you do with ice? You can cool water, but what can you do with water? There's so many things. You can bathe, you can drink, you can swim, you can make electricity, make the world go round and round. So it's static in relation to consciousness, to jiva, and it's certainly static in relation to the Swarup Shakti and the life of Leela in relation with Bhagavan, But but it's nonetheless dynamic in its own scope. Fascinating. Raj Pariksit and Bhagavatam wanted to know from Sukadeva about this material nature. He said he knows, he told, I know this is a particular Shakti of Bhagavan, and very astute as he was, he understood that by understanding the Shaktis of Bhagavan, one understands something about Bhagavan. If you understand the potency, the energy of a person, you know that person in ways that, if you know of him but don't know what he does, which he does by the exercise of his power and potency, you don't know him as well. So the Raj wanted to know. He asked the sage, Rishi, Sukha, tell me about material nature because I know by understanding it my appreciation for Bhagavan will be increased. He wasn't running away from material nature. He's a bhakta. He wasn't running away like the gyanis trying to avoid material nature. No. He saw it in relation to Bhagavan, had its place. Everything has its place. Bhakti in one sense is to excavate the connection that all things have with Bhagavan. Make that connection. and Make everything joyful thereby. Realize the potential of everything. So he asked the sage, and the sage said, it's fascinating, what can I say? It's an endless transformation of the gunas, of the modes of of... three modes by which it operates, sattva, rajas, tamas. It makes itself intelligible. It moves. It resists movement physically. It works in a subtle realm of the psyche also at manifesting clarity, manifesting ambition, and manifesting this kind of lethargy. Fascinating, he says, in the whole world. This is naya. Shakti is a transformation of this. Things constantly changing. It's Absolutely fascinating," he said. "I'll tell you what I know, or what people say about it, at this date and time." And then he goes on and describes the cosmos and so forth and so on. So it's uh, from the uh, perspective of one who knows, one who knows Maya. In relation to its source, finds it to be also dynamic. We can look at its power to delude. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. I've told the story before that how I sat one day on the 11th floor of the 11th story building that we had purchased for Prabhupada in New York, which is a great victory for him. You know, he came to New York as a beggar, begging people to take up spiritual life. And that was his only interest. He wasn't begging for food, but he ate what came his way based on begging people to take to the chanting of the holy name of Krishna. And he lived in the Bowery and uh, not a very uptown, upscale neighborhood. And uh, after many years of begging like this, which is his repeated practice, just like Nitananda Prabhu, begging people, the downtrodden people for that matter, people that he would find on the street, which at that time was quite a few young people were on the street. Based on that practice of begging, Tridandi is the name for this sannyasi in our tradition. He's a beggar. He's not Bhagavan. He's a beggar. We call it Tridandi sannyas. Sannyas means to give up, to renounce the world. Some people in the Gyanmarg, in the path of knowledge, reason that coming to knowledge and thereby renouncing the world or the pursuit of worldliness, the pursuit of temporary things, when it becomes complete, coming to knowledge... He no longer chases after enduring happiness in relation to things that don't exist. And having become so complete, he's full, he's Bhagavan, Omanayana. They think that by taking sannyas, they become God. But the bhakti idea is quite different. That by taking sannyas, one becomes a beggar. Begs people to take the gift of prehima. Namo Mahavadan Krishna Prehima, Pradayate. Rupa Goswami, one of the great beggars in our tradition, identified Chaitanya Mahabhu as a great giver. Krishna Prima Purdayate. Giving prema And taking note of this, he was astounded. This rare thing is being given out so freely. Goodness. Coming in that line, in that lineage, in that tradition, and the Sannyasins, this is their preoccupation. Beg people to take prema What can you do? Such a valuable thing but they don't recognize it. So he came and he begged people to take brain. And by doing this in time, Krishna gave him all facility. Like I said earlier this morning, bhakti follows bhakti, mukti follows bhakti. Bhakti means the pursuit of material enjoyment. By the pursuit of material enjoyment, you won't get bhakti and you won't get mukti. By pursuit of mukti, you won't get material enjoyment. That's for sure. And you won't get bhakti either. Mukti doesn't give bhakti, and mukti doesn't give bhakti. It ends the pursuit of material enjoyment. Of course, if you pursue mukti outside of bhakti, then you will get bhakti. That'll happen to you. Without bhakti, there's no mukti. If you pursue mukti independently, thinking yourself to be very intelligent and introspective, and as a result of that becoming renounced, people will come and offer you all kinds of things. Again, you become involved in bhakti. But bhakti will save you from that. So by pursuing bhakti, you can't get mukti and you can't get bhakti. By pursuing mukti, you can't get bhakti and you can't get bhakti. By pursuing bhakti, bhakti comes and mukti comes. This practical. Mukti comes like this, bhakti comes like this, both of them, like servants of bhakti. Offering themselves, bhakti means material facility. So all facilities offered. At a certain point, when bhakti is really coming, then just see. Probably got an 11-story building in Manhattan. He was on the top floor. I was sitting with him, but he was no different when he was sitting on the floor in the Bowery. His persona never changed. Now he was surrounded by bhakti. And he used that facility only to convince people to take pram. He'd say, just see. Look at all the bukti I've got. Hmm? You want that? You're trying so hard. Take pram. Pursue pram and you'll get it. So anyway, we were sitting there in the 11th story of the building. Quite a victory in a sense for probably. never changed his demeanor, neither his preoccupation. It was the same. He looked at me and I was a young sannyasin 25 years old and he said have you seen the New York women <laughs> and I didn't know what he, what he really was after I'm not supposed to be looking at women you're a sannyasi <laughs> and he said they're so beautiful <laughs> and he really meant it he said they're so beautiful New York women and then I just listened and he just talked and he said and they are captivating the men in this way and and he went on. It was a long explanation. And the cars are buzzing, and the buildings are going up, and all this wonderful. He said, "All oh, by the influence of these beautiful women, the whole thing is going round and round, and all this busy, busy, busy city, and so forth." He said, "This is." Then he stopped. And he said, with a big eyes, "This is Vishnu Maya." <laughs> wow, fascinating, isn't it? Just fascinating. So we could look in on the fascinating, dynamic movement of Vishnumaya, but not be deluded by that. So it's dynamic in its own sense, not static. And it's causing movement of the jiva in a particular way. It affords a kind of existence, one that's here today and gone tomorrow. It affords a kind of a knowledge, relative knowledge. And it affords a kind of happiness, temporary happiness. It turns into misery, so it's a distorted manifestation then of the sarup shakti. It has existence, it has knowledge, it has happiness, but in a distorted way. So, therefore, as I say, these two, jiv shakti, maya shakti, they are the partial manifestation and a distorted manifestation of the sarup shakti. Although they are shaktis in their own right. And described as such, Jeev Shakti, Maya Shakti. Nonetheless, there is a primal Shakti, and they find their origins in that. So, this is important, of course, doctrine, and it's coming out here. In this one verse, Bhagavan is comparing himself to the Jeev, and, and the difference. So the Jeev Shakti is being discussed, the Maya Shakti is being discussed, that Krishna says, I come into the world, but don't come under the influence of. And this extraordinary atma maya, shakti, is introduced, under the influence of which I do come in the world, and I remain aloof from it. I'm in it, but I'm not of it. Like the lotus on the water. Lotus sits above the water, and its stem goes in the water and into the mud. but No mud on the lotus. It's not wet, and it's not muddy. So Krishna says, I'm in the world, but I'm not of it. Atma-maya, I come under the influence of my internal shakti, my Swarupa shakti I never come under the influence of the maya-shakti. And this is the difference then, he says, between me and you, and as much as you're a Jeev. And that's why you, Arjuna, that's why you forget your births, because you come under the influence of the maya-shakti and you forget. Sometimes people say, well, why do we forget? If we knew what we were in our last life, then... That knowledge would be useful. Material nature is affording us a struggle. It's troublesome, painful. But if I knew in my previous birth, then wouldn't that be better? In a sense, I'm being punished without knowledge of what I did wrong. Sometimes people make this complaint, right? But you can't have knowledge and you can't have ignorance at the same time. It's just not possible. You understand? So if you want ignorance, if you want material enjoyment, that is ignorance. If you want enduring enjoyment in relation to material things, that's ignorance. And if you pursue that, you're going to stay within material nature, you're going to get another birth. And there's no question of knowledge. Material nature is not enlightening. As much as it gives negative impetus to move away from its influence, it doesn't contain within it the knowledge by which one can do so. Therefore, although we pursue material enjoyment and become frustrated as a result of it and swear it off, we return back to it again. Like the kids who chew the gum and then it used to be and then it got a little stale and then you put it underneath the desk and go back to it later on. Puna punas charbita charbananam Chewing the chewed. I guess they don't do that anymore. There weren't as many things out there. to stimulate the senses with and lead you on, such as the development, wonderful developments of technology. More facility to be deluded by to think that uh, there's possibility for finding enduring happiness. Hey, it's enduring. I just titillate myself with one thing until it stops and another thing is right there. (laughs) It just keeps on going. So, you can't have ignorance and knowledge at the same time. You can't insist, why don't I know when you're pursuing ignorance. Now the opportunity to know comes in relation to the divine dispensation, the descent of the avatar, the guru parampara. Here comes the opportunity to know. We're giving you the chance to know. We're telling you. Now don't tell me. If I knew, then I'm telling you. (laughs) You know now. (laughs) I'm the teacher. I'm here to tell you. Krishna comes to teach. He says, so now know. You're complaining. If I knew, then I would be, you know, in a better position not to do that which causes me to suffer. So now, he says, no. I'm telling you. And see my position. I've had many births. I remember all of them. You June, do not. This is my position. I've come here, but I'm not under the influence of material nature. There's another energy behind my movements. Atma Maya. I'm kind of a plaything in the hands of Radha. I'm dancing here, as we'll hear. What for? In pursuit of my devotees. That's what I'm here. The byproduct of that is knowledge is coming to the people. They can't complain anymore. If I knew, then now you can know. I'm here to tell you, he says. He comes as the avatar. He comes through Guru Parampara. He comes in the Veda, in the scripture. He gives all... this. This is what's there for us. I've often said that all species of life, they have built within a mechanism for meeting the basic needs of life, for defending themselves, for finding food, finding shelter, and mating. Eating, sleeping, mating, defending. Each species has a built-in mechanism for this. Every species has some defense system, as much as you can defend yourself. The message is, (laughs) you can't. (laughs) You can't. It works sometimes. But ultimately, it fails, right? Every animal has a defense system, and every animal's defense system can be overridden by another. One living being is food. For this is the message. If you just look and see, this is not book knowledge. Your position is uh, not defendable ultimately. Atmasainyeshu satsepi tesham pramodini dadam pasya napina pasyati. is <laughs> a. Fallible soldiers we've surrounded ourselves with. This is the opening statement of Sugadev to the Raj. You've surrounded yourself with fallible soldiers. Friends, family, depending on whatever it may be. The skunk's smell, the, the deer's speed. Every species has something. It's not only fallible. I used to like to say about this verse, he said, you're surrounded yourself by fallible soldiers. You're trying to protect your existence, family, friends... Bank balance and so forth is fallible. It's not only fallible, but it's mutinous. Not only the soldier's weak, but they're mutinous. They turn against you. <laughs> it's a fact. Family members may turn against you even. <laughs> you built your kingdom only to find that they revolted against you. She threw you out. You came home one morning and the doors were, all, locks were all changed. Had a little duffel bag outside. <laughs> This is yours and the rest is mine. It happens. So you can't rely, this is the point, on such. But at any rate, to some extent, then there is a system. Ultimately it fails, but every species has a defense system. It knows what to eat and how to mate and how to find shelter. So in human life we have these needs too, eating, sleeping, mating, and defending. But we have another need. We have the need to know why. Why? Why am I? Pressing question. We cannot let this go to the background, otherwise we'd be just two-legged animal. Answering the why question is to lead a human life. Now there's a way to pursue this. If you pursue the why question without the help that's built in to the system. Like I said, to answer the how questions that arise in every other species of life, material nature has provided the answers. Right, So now we have another question that arises in human life. So where is the answer? Are we just to make that up ourselves, Or is there something built into the system for humans? Or are we the only unfortunate ones? No, there's a system to answer the why question. And this is the whole idea of avatar. From that side to this side. Perfect knowledge comes to the imperfect. We want to be perfectly happy. For that we need perfect knowledge. Perfect knowing. knowledge informs action. So... If we want perfect knowledge from our position of imperfection, we have to have a perfect means. What is the perfect means? Our intelligence is imperfect. Our mind is imperfect. Our senses are imperfect. Our senses inform our minds and intelligence, and they're imperfect, so they give imperfect information. So by these means, exercise under themselves, mind, intelligence, senses, how can we arrive at perfect knowledge? Where do these things come from? They come from acting imperfectly, acting out of ignorance. We've got a body, in senses, we've got a mind, we've got intellect, and it's the result of which kind have we got? There's different kinds, and they're a result of a certain kind of action. What kind of action have we been preoccupied with? Imperfect action. Pursuit of perfect happiness in relation to things that don't endure. That's not intelligent. That's ignorant. And as a result of that, we have a particular form. That's what's generating our sense of self, our desires. So how these instruments then generated by this pursuit of ignorance can give us perfect knowledge, that's a backwards idea. No. So from outside of this predicament, which is imperfection, perfection must come, it descends. This is Abhutar, this descending principle. Revelation. The reality is not a static thing. I've already explained, material nature is not static, although it's the illusion provided by material nature is static in relation to the dynamic nature of ultimate reality. Still, material nature is dynamic. See how it's deluding. I mean, you cannot come up with a, <laughs> a puzzle greater than this. and The power to delude. No matter how intelligent a person is, the brightest man, the brightest woman, can do the dumbest things. Right? And they know it, and they do it anyway. This is the power of Vishnu Maya. Just make a fool out of it, make an ass out of everybody. No matter how intelligent you are, there's such power. So it's dynamic, but static in relation to ultimate reality. If this is an illusory reality, where things are here today and gone tomorrow, an ultimate reality, then is that ultimate reality static or is it dynamic? Dynamic many times over. I mean. Material existence is the sleeping condition of the soul. The soul's asleep unto itself, and so much movement. What if it's awake? Will it cease to move? Yes, in relation to things that don't endure, but it's active by nature. So ultimate reality is active, alive, has an agenda. But it's not something that you can put on your agenda, like we try to do with material objects, make them part of our agenda. It has an agenda of its own, and we're on it. We're on its agenda. So if it wants itself to be known, it can be known, otherwise not. This is what we mean by revelation. A substantial form of that is the descent of Bhagwan, the avatar, into the world. So how then will we take advantage of that? How will we, in imperfection, attain perfect knowledge? We have to have a perfect means. And the perfect means is, as I often said, with folded hands. This is perfect. Or it can be like this. As we do in Kirtan. I give up. I stop using my imperfect means and faculties to achieve perfect knowledge. But I venerate perfect knowledge itself in my regard to that. Then it becomes naturally disposed towards us. After all. Without that, we're going against perfection. In a simple sense, we're putting ourselves in the center rather than acknowledging the actual center. So we're moving against the current and therefore struggle for existence. But if you can go downstream also, and this is the idea of folded hands, hands raised, is to go downstream, to go with the flow, as they say. Ishparam He says, I'm in control of all beings. Get with the program <laughs> is the idea. You're not. He is. He comes, the avatar comes, and he's in control of all beings. Their destiny is in his hands. Now, If we approach on friendly terms, then we're going to get a friendly response. If we go against the current, if we fight the nature of things, make ourselves big when we're actually small, Think ourselves into being big, imagine ourselves as the controller, then we have to struggle. So perfect knowing comes like this by revelation. It makes itself available. The avatar is a substantial example of this. Sacred texts, this is revealed knowledge. Surely it's written down and so far, but it's revealed tene ne brahmahridaya Tene brahmahridaya and what kind muyantiyatsuraya. What kind of knowledge? Bhagavatam opens with this stanza, this line. says, Tene brahmanar dayadikavaya Muyanti yatsūraya In the heart of the K- Adikavya, Yas Tene Brahma. Spiritual knowledge is given. Tene brahmanar What kind of spiritual knowledge? muhyanti yatsūraya By which the gods and goddesses are bewildered even. That is knowledge of this descent of Krishna, who's unborn, birthless, but takes birth anyway. And not like any other avatar. Study the birth of the different avatars. And Shringa came out of a pole. Vraha came out of the nose of Brahma. So many different avatars. But Krishna's actually born, as we heard this morning. Actually born and suckling the breast of Yashoda. Very difficult to understand. Very extraordinary. This is Avatari, source of all avatars indeed, coming and looking like almost impotent in comparison to some of the other avatars. What does he do? He just plays. But to play one has to have power. All-powerful. This is Sri Krishna. Mujanti Atsurya, An understanding which is, eludes the gods and goddesses. And there are so many examples in Bhagavad. Brahma was deluded by the boy Krishna. Indra was deluded. These examples are there. Bhagavad is saying in the opening stanza, what it's about, what you'll find here. Just see. In the heart of Vyas, Samadhinanu He had written all this revealed literature down, organized its compilation, I should say, as the editor-in-chief. And still he was feeling unsatisfied. Narada came and told, No wonder you're feeling really unsatisfied. Tell them about bhakti in no uncertain terms. The full idea of bhakti, you have to tell them about Krishna. This is where bhakti reaches its fullest expression, embodied in Radha. That kind of bhakti corresponds with Bhagavan, Sri Krishna, Swami Bhagavan. Very special, rasyam. Very special, mysterious idea of knowledge. It looks like ignorance, but it's the highest knowledge. This is the message of Bhagavatam. Narada said, go think about that. And he did. In Samadhi, and all these Leelas manifest. And the purport to all the Leelas manifest. And the feeling, the bhava of them. Then he could write, Srimad Bhagavatam. brahma muhyanti This kind of revelation. So, Bhagavat. There are many sacred texts, but the Bhagavat, the nothing that compares to this. This is objective. It's a uh, beautiful story of the love life of God. Very extraordinary text. So, the, the avatar himself, the book about him, two prominent forms of revelation, Nir api urukrame, as we said this morning, citing the Bhagavatam itself. It's a book beyond books. It unties the knot of material existence and ties one in a knot of love in relation to Krishna. Itambhuta-gunohari. It unties the knot of material existence and itambhuta-gunohari is filled with a description of the qualities of Krishna that ties one to Krishna. Sugadev was already untied for material existence. The Atmarama, the self-satisfied person, why then did he undertake the study of Bhagavatam? Because such is the nature of the qualities of Hari. That people who have untied the knot of material existence, Muktas, if they should hear about his qualities, they become attracted to them. So what are they becoming attracted to? They have no attraction from illusory life. So his ninth life is not illusory. It is the ultimate reality. And he makes that available to us, now to that through his descent, avatar. He makes perfect knowing possible by revelation. And so we are to have that perfect knowing, we have to have a perfect means to take advantage of that. That means not to go against the current, but to go with the flow. This, then, is what is built in to the world, so to speak, this revelation, to answer the question that arises in human society, why? You could try to figure it out on your own, but with faulty instruments, what will you arrive at? This is very... Dangerous, then a little bit of knowledge is is very dangerous. So, what can be the result? You can do away with yourself. You can think yourself away. You can decide that you ultimately don't exist or that you're just some atoms, chemicals, or something like that. But if you use the knowing power that arises in human life as you're released to the extent you are from the grip of material nature and you can know that you exist and discuss about it, if you can bring that in touch them with this descent that's built into the world, then comprehensive knowing is possible. In one part of the mission of the avatar. So Krishna has explained himself here, how he comes. And then, still the question arises, why does he come? I've answered it really, but he didn't answer it in this text. He said, I come like this, I'm not under the influence of material nature. I come by my own atma So the question arises in Arjuna's mind, why would you come? You're dancing in Goloka. Why do you come here? You're under the influence of your swarup Shakti performing Leela. And why come to this place of misery and ignorance? So he has a reason. He says, Yada Yada hi Dharmasya Blani Bhavati Bharata abhipta nama dharma sataratmanam He says, Whenever, O descendant of Bharata Arjuna, Dharma is diminished and unrighteousness is on the rise, at that time I manifest myself. Paritranaya-sadunam-minashaya-ca-duskritam dharma samstapanartaya sambhavam For the protection of the saintly and the destruction of the evil doers. As well as for the purpose of establishing Dharma, I manifest in every age. So here he's given kind of a threefold purpose. Establishing Dharma, doing away with, um, evil or exposing such, and giving protection to the devoted. So it should be apparent that two of these things could be done by someone other than Krishna. Dharma could be established by powerful, righteous people. And also, we see even in the material world, relatively speaking, people are capable of doing away with evil to some extent. But only Krishna can nourish his devotees. What kind of protection do they need, his devotees? Actually, they need protection from the suffering of separation from him that they feel. For them, he comes... It means to say this, that there are always devotees, there are always sadhakas in the material world. material world is going budva budva going on over and over again, manifesting, becoming unmanifest, manifesting, becoming unmanifest. It's the interaction of the jiva shakti and maya shakti, the individual units of consciousness and material nature. Small in size as they are, they become deluded by her influence, become implicated in karma, action that's reactionary, binding and so forth. But in the midst of this, there are always sadhakas because the world is always manifesting and Krishna is always manifesting within it. There are different avatars. He says, Sambhavami yuga yuga I come again and again, age after age. In one sense, this is a reference to a particular type of avatar, the yuga avatar who comes in every yuga or cosmic time cycle to teach a particular type of dharma that's most applicable for the time and circumstance. We call that a yuga avatar. In one sense, then, this is a reference to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, to the fact that there's a yuga avatar in Kali Yuga. Because sometimes it appears from a superficial reading of Scripture that it's not the case, that there's only three avatars for three yugas. and the fourth yuga, Kali Yuga, is so bad, God doesn't come. But no, Sambhavami, Yuge, Yuge. In every yuga I come. And I teach the Dharma. So in Kali he comes as Chaitanya Mahavu. In a covert way, he comes. He comes disguised as a devotee of himself to show the glory of being a devotee, to taste himself from the perspective of the devotee and glorify that position, show how desirable it is. You want everything but bhakti, but Krishna only wants bhakti. This is the lesson. He only wants bhakti. What should we want? And we're in a better position to taste bhakti from the perspective of the devoted, to be the embodiment of devotion itself rather than the object of devotion, which he is. We're naturally suited for it. With good association, we can adapt to that lifestyle. That would be natural for us. For him to take the position of a devotee is a rather forced position. But he does it. It's so desirable. He tries it. Krishna, trying to taste himself from the perspective of Radha. This is Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And in doing so, showing us himself how desirable is devotion. So he comes, Sambhavami Yuge Yuge. He manifests yuga after yuga. It also means he comes anytime, whenever he wants to come. He comes when he feels, uh, there is a necessity. But this necessity of establishing Dharma and doing away with Adharma, this is a byproduct of his primary reason for coming which is to give protection to the devotees. So as I said, they are always devotees, they are always sadhakas. And these sadhakas reach a certain point in their sadhana, in their practice. They perfect their practice, they become bhava-bhakta's. Their practice of love turns into love. You can practice love in a sense, like children play with dolls, something like that. It's a practice of taking care of children. and they can grow up and actually take care of children. So there's a kind of a bhakti in practice, apprenticeship. We call it sadhana bhakti. It matures into bhava bhakti, where bhakti is performed out of emotion. And that bhava is a ray of the sun of preem, under which the affairs of Krishna are conducted, preem. When those devotees reach bhava, they still have a kind of sadhana. They're not sadhakas per se, they're bhava bhaktis, but still they're doing practice. Bhava bhakti is has a kind of a sadhana, and it has some prame in it. And by culturing that prame, that kind of practice that cultures the prame. Now we don't have bhav, which is a ray of prame. So how can we cultivate it? Not so much hands on, but we can do things by which will attract its descent. Just like a young girl can. Conduct herself in such a way as to attract a young boy's attention if she knows what he wants, what his favorite color is, what he likes to eat, and so forth. She can wear that color dress, she can prepare that kind of meal. So we could conduct ourselves in such a way that this love, preem, array of this preem, the form of it known as bhava that would come within our heart. And then we cultivate that hands-on practice of that, cultivating that, churning that. These devotees have a great need. They have a great necessity. Otherwise, they have no necessity. Yoga, jayam, Bahami Krishna says, I maintain what they have, I preserve what they lack, I preserve what they have, I provide what they lack. What need do they have? This is their only need. They may have another need. They have this need, and given their experience in the material world, the nightmare of material life that they've come out of now, that they've woken up from, they still have some trace memory of what it's like to be suffering in material existence. The more they become steeped in bhava, the more remote it becomes. But because they're here in the world, they see it readily and they're reminded of it. So the bhakti in them causes them to have some compassion for people. This is their only suffering, the suffering of others. If you talk about avatar, this is the kripa avatar, the descent of kripa, of mercy, in the form of the devotee. It would be very wise to understand this point. Krishna's mercy is indirect. It comes to the devotee. Why? Because Krishna is so removed from the misery of material existence. And he has no experience of suffering. So his heart doesn't relate to that. In order to... Relate to something, you have to have a sympathetic heart for it. You don't have any sympathy for it, you don't have any experience, then you can't share it, right? Krishna has no experience of suffering whatsoever. But he does show it through the devotee. This is how he does it. Immense compassion. So this is the Kripa avatar, the descent of Krishna's mercy in the form of the devotee. So he has that need in a sense. He suffers in that way, seeing the plight of others. And he feels what? In order to remedy that, Bhagavan should come. Advaita, as a devotee, showed this. Bhagwan should come. He prayed. This is uh, like some kind of yoga maya. Advaita never suffered either, but he's coming in the role of the devotee. So they get the full perspective. <laughs> so they want him to come for the sake of others, and they want him to come. Because they want him. They really have desire to be with him. So he comes. This is what causes Krishna to come. Krishna is coming only for his devotees and all the avatars, for that matter. And there are so many. They come in different forms. They come in different places. Whenever he says, and wherever. It means the avatar or the descent of Bhagwan is not limited to a particular nation like India. It can be anywhere. can be anytime. So you may be wondering, where is one? Where is one coming here? He can come whenever, wherever. That's a fact. And this is why he comes. Then Krishna is speaking here. So in relation to Krishna himself, he comes for those sadhakas in that condition. Those advanced sadhakas bhava-bhaktas. He comes for them. And what does he do? He picks them up. He helps them to go the distance. He comes for praen bhaktas Krishna. Krishna comes for preen-bhaktas appearing in this world. Who need, who have a necessity. He says he comes to help the devotee. What's their necessity? They've got preem. Their necessity is they need sneha, man, pranay, raga, anurag, mahabhav. They need all these things to complete their stai, their dominant emotion, which forges under the influence of sarup shakti a relationship with Bhagavan. They need that. So he comes and he performs his leela. He comes for them. <laughs> For such high devotees he comes. He performs his leela, and they participate in the leela. and in the association of his internal associates they develop in this affection and relative to their dominant emotion these further developments of their sthayibhava that completes their bond, loving bond and relationship with Bhagavan and they them to enter into the leela and so forth. So Krishna comes to them. That's why he comes. And we saw when he comes manifest his Lila for those devotees. Krishna is only relating with these devotees. Krishna does not go outside of himself. He never goes outside the jurisdiction of his atma maya, his svarupa shakti. He never enters the material maya shakti. Maya shakti stays at a distance from him, ashamed of herself, she says in Bhagavatam, for the tasks she has of providing negative impetus. So this is the point now. When the Swarup Shakti descends in your heart, Krishna will relate with you personally. This is the beginning. Bhakti proper. Otherwise, Paramatma is there. You can't be happy with that, right? Gurudev is there. We can be happy with that. This is the influence of Swarup Shakti coming to us through Guru Parampara, bringing us gradually in touch. So Krishna comes with these kind of devotees. And we see, what does he do? Well, he establishes Dharma. He kills a few demons. The duskritinas he, he deals with them. So many demons came to the brudge. And he went outside of the brudge. Apparently by their influence. But really for what? To showcase the love of the inhabitants of Vrindavan. It's a dance he's doing with them. Causing separation. To make possible the complete union. That then causes them to go to the unmanifest Leela. So everything Krishna is doing, all this establishing dharma and dealing with the evil elements and so forth, this is all just a byproduct of what he's really doing. Just like it said, it appears that by Nishkam Karma Yoga one becomes qualified for bhakti. Or by getting knowledge one becomes qualified for bhakti. But it's actually not the case. They don't give bhakti. They kind of appear to. But So Krishna appears to deal with the dharma and the demonic and so forth. But actually he's dealing only with his devotees. He's only relating with this, within the context of this Atma Maya. This is where he stays, under the influence of this Swarup Shakti. We want to attract that within us. That's how to get a relationship with Krishna. That's what we're doing. That's what this Bhakti Sadhana is about. So this is when he comes to the world. This is his purpose. And other things are accomplished, without thinking about it, kind of. It's a byproduct of that. So, in this way he says... Why he comes? Why would he come? He's under the influence of Atma Maya. Why does he come? Because there's some other people in this world who are attracted to this Atma Maya, who have some of its influence in them. They're my devotees. And I want to foster that. I'm drawn by them now. They have such love for me. They've dedicated themselves. They've committed themselves so much. They've knocked on so many doors and been turned down in my name. They've begged on my behalf, please take frame. Please take brain. And people have rejected them. Their own families have rejected them for pursuing brain. The world has called them crazy. They have nowhere to go but to me, and they've turned to me, and I can't turn away from them. I'm going after them. All they've gone through, and I was there the whole time. I knew about it all. All that they went through. And when they gave themselves entirely, emptied themselves out of anything else, became destitute, and dependent only upon me, how can I resist them? They've listened to my devotees. they followed them. I've come for them. Krishna's drawn to them. And what a wonderful result of this is, you see. Don't think that by simply cultivating bhakti, something will be missing. The whole world is being saved as a byproduct of their bhakti. It's not up to you to save the world. It's up to you to try to love Krishna. That's all. Is it so hard... He's so attractive. How he descends. He's always surrounded by his Atma Maya. Arjuna wonders, why the hell would you come here? I don't get it. Why would you come here? He said, this is why. Because some people there are trying to love me. And they're getting pretty good at it. And I cannot stay away from them. And I'm coming for them. And as a byproduct of that, the whole world is going to be benefited by my teachings. It's up to you to love Krishna. Try to do this. This is a big, big task. This is a task we have at hand. To try to create a favorable environment to attract the attention of Krishna. That he may descend. Descend in our heart, Abhutar. He can go anywhere. Anytime. Attach yourself to some devotee. Krishna will be coming soon. That is the way. Attach yourself to that devotee, that Kripa Shakti. I remember standing once hearing Prabhupada talk in Los Angeles. and In the middle of the talk, he said, we were talking about the guru. He said, so the guru is the incarnation of Krishna's mercy. Kripa Abhutar. It just hit me like a ton of bricks. I thought, wow, what am I? Who am I? What am I? Where am I? <laughs> who am I standing next to? This is the concentrated form of Krishna's mercy coming to me. How I should pay attention here. How I should take advantage and it's a fact this is the teaching they say charity begins at home so you've got to take care of number one first so take care of yourself in this way you have a right to do that that's a fact that will cause so much self-sacrifice and in the context of that so much will overflow so many people will be benefited as a byproduct of that Dharma will be established you will embody it and um, hypocrisy and all of Kali Yuga will be exposed so days like Janmashtami, this is how we have to think a little bit. We want Krishna to take birth in our heart. He takes birth on this day. We celebrate it here on earth, this day. The idea behind it is these celebrations, these observances and so forth, is just this, that we want to cause him to take birth in our heart. This is the idea. That devotee who he's coming for, that devotee can give diksha. Krishna's appearance in Mathura is compared to diksha. He appeared in the heart of Vasudeva, transferred that to the womb of Devaki. So, to attach yourself to such devotees who are dear to Krishna ensures that we will also become dear to Krishna. In the last verse, with regard to this avatar tattva, text 9, Krishna says, Janma karma cha medivyam. Evam Tatvata tattvataha. punar janmanaiti maameti. So Arjuna. One who truly understands the divine nature of my birth and activities is not reborn upon the giving up his body, but comes to me. O Arjuna. Janma karma cha medivyam. He says, My janma, my birth, my activities, Nibbhyam, they are transcendental. And one who understands them in truth, as we're explaining, we're explaining the tattva of Krishna's descent. And here's the fruit of this, which comes from this, he says. So this is not just an idle discussion. There is a result. If you pay attention, you understand. Of course, you should understand theoretically, and that should then give motivation to apply yourself in such a way that this can be realized. This means Tatpatha in truth. You want to be a, a Tatpavit. You should be a Shastravit. To know your faith should be Shastriya Shraddha, informed by revelation. It will equip you for treading the path. Oh, we have so many books. Prabhupada wrote so many books. They weren't just for selling. <laughs> they were for reading and studying. So to know to understand the truth, first we can understand theoretically, therefore I'm taking so much time to explain these things in these verses, in the avatar tattva, the nature of the descent, his birth, and the subsequent activities that follow. To understand these things in truth, then, Chaktva deham punar janma, naiti mameti, so arjuna. It's a very interesting statement here. He says, for one who understands the transcendental nature, Of my birth and activities. One sense the verse says, he doesn't have to take birth again. Problem here is, as he said, Arjun, you and I have had many births. I remember them, you don't. Because you don't, that's a problem. That indicates that you are taking birth and you're coming under the influence of material nature. Because what's causing your birth is the ignorance that you're functioning under the influence of, pursuing. Enduring happiness, is I say, in relation to temporary things, folly. It's causing you to take birth. Because it's ignorance that you're pursuing, you can't have knowledge at the same time. Therefore, you don't know that you've taken many births. You can't remember them. You wonder why? I've explained why. You can't have both at the same time, one or the other. You want knowledge? You want ignorance. And if you take this knowledge, then you will forget about all births, once and for all. Even this one. People are interested to know what their previous birth is. Our teaching is, forget about this birth. Forget about it. It's just a nightmare. It's just a dream. Wake up and forget about it. You're something else. So he says, one who knows me in truth, who understands in truth the nature of my birth and activities, they don't take birth again. So the problem that was presented in the first verse, where he explained to Arjuna, you've forgotten many births. This is how it's solved, by understanding this avatar tattva the nature of his descent, in truth. This is the fruit of that. But it means another thing also. And both Baldi Bijabhusana and Bhishwana Chakuritakur have commented along these lines. They've said, Tyaktva deham It means that you don't have to take another birth. You don't have to give up this body and take another birth. It means, in this body your life can become perfect in the here and the now. And this is the teaching one said. You should become Krishna conscious now. Of course, now if we take this also in relation to the two verses back where Krishna says, Sambhavami dugei dugei. I come Yuga after Yuga and thus see that statement in relation to the Yuga avatars and the fact that there's a Yuga avatar for Kali Yuga, then... This explanation is very pertinent because in Kali Yuga, if we take shelter of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, then that kind of bhakti will perfect the sadhaka day as such that even in that body you can go to Gorloka. To what to speak of in Kali Yuga, we saw it previously in Bhagavatam in the instance of Dhruva. Dhruva took to bhakti and Dhruva went to Vaikuntha in his self same body. All the elements changed into a swaroop spiritual form, and he went there, along with his mother, took her too, there was the power of his bhakti, this is incredible, you think about it, no one wants to give up their body, you don't have to, <laughs> just take the bhakti, you can keep your mother too, take her with you, it sounds odd, but you understand the metaphysics of it. The inhabitants of Vrindavan, they didn't want to give up their bodies. They wanted to know what they would be in their next life. When Krishna showed them, you'd go from Gokul cool to Golok, They were very happy. They would have their cows, their friends, their family. So this sadhakadeya can be perfected. This is a very esoteric teaching of Godi Vaishnavism. We find Rup sanatan They have a in Gaur lila, Just like they appear here. A little younger. Such power. So... This is the fruit of understanding Krishna's uh, birth and activity. Therefore, we spend time like this on Janamastami to discuss all these things. That We might get some light into the significance of his descent. Pay attention. Sometimes people say, well, gee, if I only had taken birth when Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was here, then I'd uh, be so fortunate. But Mahabharata was teaching us that what? That you've taken birth at a time when Krishna Nam is being widely distributed. Mahaprabhu came to take advantage of Krishna Nam. So for you to say, if only I had to come when Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was here. You've come when Nam Sankirtan is available. Widely. Take advantage of that. Mahaprabhu is trying to take advantage of that. Rupa Goswami is saying, Oh, I only have two ears and one tongue. How can I take advantage of these two syllables, Krishna? When I say them, my mind wants millions of ears and millions of tongues to do justice that sound of those two syllables. Mahaprabhu was going mad from this Namsan Kirtan. We're thinking, well, if only I had Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's association. If I was born in his lila, then I would have been fortunate. Mahaprabhu was come chasing the name. The named is chasing his own name. How valuable is that name? <laughs> that name is available to us through Guru Paramparasa. Know your good fortune to be what it is in the here. And then now, take advantage. This is the idea.